Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last December, the Houthis and Yemen's Saudi-backed government avoided a bloodbath by agreeing to withdraw their fighters from Hodeidah by January 7th. The two sides have missed that deadline by a couple of months, but the U.N. envoy continues to say that both sides remain committed to implementing the agreement. The humanitarian situation remains dire. Aid agencies are struggling to provide aid to 24 million people that need it. With me is Scott Paul. He's humanitarian policy lead at Oxfam. He was just in Yemen. It is great to meet you, Scott Paul. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here with you. Thank you. Could you explain why so many people need humanitarian aid in Yemen? When you say 24 million people need aid, it's almost incomprehensible to think of, uh, you know, that's bigger than states, countries. This is an enormous amount of people. Yeah, people's brains can't comprehend that number. So it's maybe a bit more useful to break down at a household level why people don't have enough to eat and how that's affecting their health and their ability to survive. So just thinking about across the country, There's a few very, very specific drivers of this crisis. Uh, This is an economic crisis. This isn't a crisis at all related to any natural hazard. And there have been people tragically killed in fighting. But most people who are dying are dying because they can't survive the economic situation. So as a start, the baseline condition for Yemen is economic and social inequality. So there's a few people who have enough purchasing power and enough wealth to ride out this crisis, no problem. When I'm in Yemen, I go to the supermarket. It's fully stocked. You can get popcorn. You can get cotton candy. It's outrageous, the bounty of things that you can find in the markets that most people in Yemen cannot afford. So that's one. Then you've got the infrastructure. I'm talking about Yemen's commercial and critical civilian infrastructure. So to break that down, it's markets and schools and hospitals ports, bridges, roads, all of these were functioning four years ago for the most part, and they have been decimated by fighting. You know, when you see pictures of destruction in in the war in Yemen, you usually see events where people have died. You don't see the destroyed hospital. You don't see uh, the port that is collapsed. And collectively, that has had a huge impact on the economy and on people's ability to conduct business and to buy things that they need to survive. Two more. Imports. Yemen is an extraordinarily import-dependent country, and the Saudi-led coalition has imposed a set of incredibly restrictive measures. Uh, We've called it a de facto blockade that create delays in importation that collectively then raise the cost of bringing goods. And by goods, I mean food, I mean medicine, I mean fuel, all of the things you need to survive. So that's now much more expensive. And lastly, key government institutions have collapsed. Most public servants in Yemen haven't been paid their salary in two and a half years. So I met people when I was in Yemen who three years ago were getting a salary. Two years ago, they were looking for jobs. A year ago, they were managing to find work on a day-to-day basis. And now it's a good day if they can find something to do where someone will pay them. And we just had a government shutdown in this country and had people in food lines pretty quickly after a month. So you can imagine in a state where the entire economy has collapsed and people already don't have savings or credit to fall back on and their neighbors don't have and their families don't have savings and credit to fall back on, 
what that will do to a community's resilience. And then in terms of one's own physical immune system, one's resilience to incredibly preventable diseases. How many aid agencies are operating in Yemen now? Because they just had a recent fundraising campaign and people are pledging billions of dollars. The Saudis are pledging billions of dollars. (laughs) The uh, people who are fighting the war are giving money to help people and bring aid. 24 million people, aid agencies, that's kind of crazy. It's not a sustainable thing. No. Aid agencies, even if we have 100 or 1,000 aid agencies providing billions of dollars worth of money, we're not going to be able to collectively prop up the economy of an entire country. And at that, a poor country that is plagued by inequality where the bottom half are eking out a living and survival on a daily basis even absent this conflict – So the good news is that in addition to the few dozen international organizations that are on the ground, there's now more and more Yemeni humanitarian organizations that are popping up and developing a real capacity to deliver at scale. So there's good news in all of this. And I think that probably that represents a lot of what we see outside of organizations. We see Yemenis every single day sharing the little that they have with their neighbors who are worse off and engaging in daily acts of selflessness to help their neighbors survive. But again, there is a limit collectively to the resilience of a population under this much stress. I'm talking with Scott Paul. He's with Oxfam and is just back from Yemen. I think a lot of people are interested in the politics of this, and there's been some votes in the U.S. Congress that have been very close on cutting off aid to uh, the Saudis and the Emirates about war-making in Yemen. What do you think about this strategy? I and Oxfam are entirely in favor of this strategy. It's actually a very common-sense strategy. You have parties to the conflict who are fighting a war that is causing the world's largest humanitarian crisis. If you want to stop the parties from fighting the war, you need to have some credibility as a peace broker to demand that they come to the table and make the kind of painful compromises that will be needed to bring about a political settlement and revive the economy. Now, I want to be really clear. We're not doing this, and I think the members of Congress who are leading this charge aren't doing this because Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and the government of Yemen are the bad guys. No, no, no. Everybody who's fighting is complicit in this catastrophe of a humanitarian situation. It's about the extent to which the United States can be a force for peace in that conflict. For the last three and a half years, for the most part, the U.S. government has tried to do that, but it's fundamentally compromised in its engagement. And unless it's willing to say that we're not interested in supporting one side of the conflict more than we're interested in supporting peace, it's going to continue to struggle to be able to be constructive. The Trump administration did come out and say, we are going to curtail certain aspects of our relationship with the Saudis. We're going to stop intelligence sharing. We're going to stop that kind of thing. Did that matter? We're going to stop refueling. Does that count? I think it matters, but I think it matters insofar as it tells a story of an administration under a huge amount of congressional pressure. Um, The Trump administration did not want to show any distance between itself and Saudi Arabia or the UAE. The fact that it felt it had to do so is a measure of how upset Congress has been 
and how much patience it's lost over three and a half years of being told, oh, don't worry, our strategy is working, as meanwhile, the largest humanitarian crisis in the world spirals further and further out of control. And fundamentally, this is a conflict that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Uh, It's a proxy war in Saudi Arabia's mind about Iran. It's actually really great that you said in Saudi Arabia's mind. Um, I think it's very controversial to say when you look at the nature of the conflict that this is actually a proxy war. It is very much a government in Yemen fighting on one side that is backed by the Saudis and the Emiratis who are serving its interests or what it sees as its interests. On the other side, the nature and extent of Iranian support for the Houthis is pretty up in the air. Uh, It's nowhere near the same level of engagement that we've seen from the Saudis and Emiratis. um, And it's not clear even how it would compare to what kind of support the U.S. is providing. But one thing that's really clear is as the conflict has gone on now, three and a half years, four years, soon more than that, the longer it goes on, the more the narrative of Iranian interest becomes the dominant narrative and the more the Saudis have difficulty saying we're prevailing in this proxy war that we've set up for ourselves. So in the end, U.S. interests haven't been served either through the humanitarian crisis or even through the quagmire that the Saudis have found themselves in. I'm talking with Scott Paul from Oxfam. He's their humanitarian policy lead. He was just in Yemen and came back from there. What's it like there? Where were you in Yemen? Tell us something about what you saw. You know, we were talking a bit before about how inequality is the main fault line in this crisis. So what that means is that when you walk around Yemen, when you drive around certain parts of Yemen, most of what you see looks pretty normal. And you have to have the context of you know, having Yemenis with you and people who've lived in Yemen for a long time together with you to say, look, the level of activity you're seeing now, that's not normal. And so what that means is that the people who are out, the people who are going about their business represent a small percentage of the population and that there's a whole other group of people who you don't see, mostly women and children, young children especially, who are suffering out of sight to most people. When I was able to go to some of the camps where people had been displaced, that's when that level of suffering becomes not only visible but visceral to anyone who will walk through. Um, And that's where it also becomes clear that, number one, humanitarian assistance is working and keeping people alive. And the flip side of that coin is humanitarian assistance is never going to be able to solve this crisis or even keep pace with it if it keeps declining at the rate it is now. You were in Sana, and that's supposed to be a beautiful place. Is it oh, it's still amazing. a beautiful place? It's amazing. Um, there are parts of Sana that have been destroyed, and you can't go around too far without seeing destroyed buildings. But equally so, there are parts of Sana which are intact. Much of it is intact. And I had a chance to go to the old city on, on my day off and see some of the most amazing just one of the most amazing places I've ever been and was treated with an incredibly warm welcome and hospitality. I find it incredibly sad because the story of Yemen is told through the architecture of old Sana'a as a story of coexistence and tolerance um, with features of Jewish architectural features everywhere that reminds us all that until pretty recently, uh, one of the world's oldest Jewish communities lived side by side in peace with all of the Muslims in, in Sana'a and throughout Yemen. And now it's unfortunately a bit of nostalgia. 
Is it dangerous to move around in Yemen? It depends who you are. One thing that I talk to my parents about every time I go and I talk to my partner and, and her parents is, like everywhere else, we have to be really careful about the risks we face. But the best protection that we have is uh, the acceptance of the community. We're only providing assistance in places where the community wants us to be providing assistance. If we're there against the will of the community or there's a lot of people who are upset by us being there, then that becomes a very, very, very dangerous proposition. There's always the risk of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's a risk that Yemenis wake up to every day. And frankly, they don't have the protection that we have of being known to be aid workers and known to be frankly, a reputational risk for anybody who kills us or hurts us or um, kidnaps us or presents other risks to us. I was talking with Dave Eggers and his Yemeni friend from San Francisco who started a coffee company in Yemen. And I read the, the Monk of Mokta book, and it was instructive to see what was going on inside the country. There were business partners who were falling apart. It was impossible to move things around. They were having all sorts of issues with checkpoints and people. And uh, it kind of brought the thing to a different level. I imagine you're seeing that when you are there in Yemen. Yeah. You know, my colleague Adam and I were talking on our way over about something that Oxfam has said for a long time, which is, you know, in an ideal situation, the best response to a humanitarian, to poverty in general, is a job. And a big part of the reason that Yemenis have experienced the world's largest humanitarian crisis is that most Yemenis don't have jobs anymore. And that's because if you want to run a business in Yemen, not only do you have to deal with the daily insecurity of conflict, but you also have to deal with a set of actors that are trying to inhibit your work, that don't care about your success, and that sometimes try to profit from your success. And so if you're responsible for importing, when I was in Yemen just now, I had the opportunity to meet with a lot of um, large-scale importers and just talk about why it's difficult to import into Yemen. You have to deal with the Saudi and Emirati inspections. Then you have to get containers off of a pier that is congested with trucks lined up for miles back just waiting to pick up. Then you've got to go through checkpoints. Then you've got to pay a second set of taxes. You know? And so by the time you've done all of that and by the time you've paid for security and you've spent money on exorbitantly expensive fuel, whatever you're selling is going to be really, really expensive. And most Yemenis aren't going to be able to afford it, especially if they don't have jobs either. What's your checklist for people who are listening and want to do something about Yemen? Numbers one, two, and three are call your member of Congress. The U.S. is not a central actor in the conflict in Yemen, but it is an incredibly important actor in the conflict in Yemen. The U.S. has the potential to be a strong broker for peace. At times, the U.S. has sent messages underscoring that it wants to see a political settlement, but it is supporting one side of the conflict, and you can't have a credible peace broker that's supporting one side of the conflict. So in a couple weeks, the Senate is going to take up a measure to end U.S. support for the coalition. Please call your senator. Tell him or her to vote for that measure. Hopefully, in a matter of months, the House and Senate will take up other legislation to support the peace process in Yemen, which will include a restriction or a suspension of sales of bombs to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. 
it is so important that that legislation passes because that probably more than anything else sends a message from Americans to the international community that it's not on board with a policy of unlimited and indefinite support to one side of the conflict no matter what the cost. Scott Paul is humanitarian policy lead at Oxfam. He was just in Yemen. Thanks a lot for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the protests calling for Algeria's leader to step down. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Eleven days ago, Algeria's leader, Abdulaziz Bouteflika, announced he was running for a fifth term. That's when the protests began. Bouteflika had a serious stroke in 2013 and is rarely seen in public. The protests started with young people, but all sectors of Algerian society quickly got behind them. So are Algerians abroad. There were protests yesterday in France, San Francisco, and several hundred people here in Daly Plaza. Mouloud Borbet is a member of Chicago's Algerian community and was an organizer of the No Fifth Term protest in Daly Plaza. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much, McDonald, for uh, reaching out to us. Um, it's a pleasure to me to actually speak on behalf of the Algerian community here in Chicago. And I would love to give some information for um, about what's happening in Algeria and then as far as the protests we had uh, yesterday. It's cool. It's good to talk with you. And I'm glad you're uh, concerned and doing something about what's happening in Algeria. Um, Abdulaziz Bouteflika has been in power for 20 years, as I was saying, and I, I, but I, probably a lot of listeners aren't familiar with him. Could you tell us a little about him and a little bit about what, where um, he's at these days? So, yeah, as you mentioned that, so he's been uh, running the country for over 20 years from now. And uh, he has a political background. And uh, at the beginning, he he brought a program, a good program, to uh, move the Algeria economy and uh, politics in general to a second level, to uh, do a lot of reforms and also to um, move forward to uh, a productive economic instead of relying on oil and gas. So. That was his strategy back to 20 years. And a lot of politicals and a lot of uh, communities, they were joining him on that on that aspect, uh, believing that that's, that's something that we, we want to uh, in Algeria. So 20 years after, and Algeria is still uh, struggling with uh, the economy and uh, like 99% relying on oil and gas. And now... Um, um, some people behind him and some people around him trying to push and which they did actually because he um he finally um did um 
did run actually it did uh, express his willing to run to the fifth term well that was yesterday and um they pushed him hard to they, they pushed hard actually to uh, uh, for the the fifth term right and he made a statement from switzerland where he's getting medical treatment that he would uh he would only stay on for one more year if uh he was elected and it would organize another uh, election but it sounds like most people don't trust that that's what would happen yeah so what happened is at the beginning so um he was uh relying on some part political parties they were supporting him that they're gonna do the work for him so which has happened actually four years ago or five years ago but with this his critical health situation uh, it, it became uh, very difficult and very complicated for him to run for the fifth term. Then after that, the, the Algerian people, they uh, realize that there is no way that he can do that. And they have to express their opinion and their, um, their uh, I mean, their unhappiness about what's going on. And, um, and so that was actually something that uh, pushed the pushed him to write a letter that was actually two days ago that he's gonna fix a lot of stuff. He's gonna move forward to a peaceful transition, which is not the case really, because that was the same speech that he had five years ago. Can you believe that this president has not been seen by his population more than seven years since 2012? He never spoken to them. He never uh, expressed any direct speech to Algerians, which is unbelievable and unacceptable. I know. I was reading some people were kind of making remarks like, well, he doesn't even know he's a candidate in the, uh, the upcoming election. That, that That's how far, you know, they, they have no idea about whether he's there or not. Unfortunately, yeah, there is, there is a lot of talking about this, this kind of scenario, which is I doubt personally, but as Algerians, we want to make sure that uh, it's not it's not acceptable uh, a president with his sick and his over 80 years that he's running for the fifth term is like in our in our understanding so we need to move forward to new a generation to new people they're going to give a refreshment to to the atmosphere which is not the case unfortunately at this point I'm talking with Maloud Bourbey. He's a member of Chicago's Algerian community and was an organizer of the No Fifth Term protests in Daly Plaza, saying no fifth term for Algeria's leader, Abdulaziz Bouteflika, who's been in power for 20 years. Uh, I wanted to get some idea about what you think of um, political instability and the risks of political instability in Algeria. Algeria had a a long civil year that a civil war that ended 20 years ago and and it killed a couple hundred thousand people um and there's been a big security state uh, in Algeria ever since uh, and people see what's happened with the rest of the arab spring uh, and countries like France say you know I was looking at a minister quote well uh, it it's in our interest to have stability in Algeria um what is there a risk of instability in Algeria that could get out of control? Uh, to be honest with you, um, um, it is. Yeah, there is. There is actually a risk if the government or the current president um, don't respond uh, positively to the protests 
and the the strikes happening uh, all, all over all over the world and all over the the country. So yeah, it is risk because people they are fed up. People they are uh, they looking they are hoping that the president and also the people around him will listen to the people. Will listen to what's happening. Can you believe that we have millions of people on the street and they have one one word to say and one message to convey? No fifth term. Enough. It's time to move forward to a new system, a new political system, a new economical system. So that's something that oh, they, they, they didn't take in consideration, unfortunately, at this point, at this time. So it may generate, it may go uh, it may go a different way, which is personally, I don't actually uh, hope. And also our military are doing their jobs as far as now, even if, um, if it's very critical, but they're doing their jobs as far as protecting people and uh, enforcing the law and also making sure that the order has to be, has to be, um, has to be established so that's something we can we definitely rely on that because algeria as you as you mentioned we went through 10 years of civil war so we have this kind of maturity to understand what are the risks and also to make sure that we're not uh we're not uh, too much um asking as far as 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 our rights and our our freedom but also to make sure that we put the pressure on the government they have to they have to look on. They have to listen to us. They have to understand that people twenty years ago they are not the same people right now. So people they supported the current president, they're not anymore the people right now standing and saying no for the fifth term. Is there a danger because there's not a lot of other likely leadership in Algeria either from the government military side they don't seem to one of the reasons they keep putting Bouteflika up for president is I'm reading is that there's they largely can't agree on a different candidate and they they're bickering among themselves the opposition isn't united and doesn't have a a solid opposition uh candidate and uh, there's a lot of unknowns out there with leadership and how it would you know, how something would happen that is correct. Yeah. So that's one of the other reasons that the political environment in Algeria is so, so dark. And it's not actually clear as we have it here in the United States that we have two, like two hands. We have, we have Democrats and we have Republicans. So out there is a little bit different, but also, and they, as you, as you mentioned, they didn't agree on who is the, the next uh, who is the replacement of the system? So they don't have they don't have uh, this agreement. That's why, I, in my in my opinion, and um, this is why they pushed the the president to run at least for one more year until they find out until they find a solution. That's something that a lot of political um, figures they're discussing and they're uh, reporting that. And also, as you mentioned, the opposition is not actually united. So there's a lot of um, leadership. There is a lot of leadership problems. And also there is a lot of uh, – there is no trust. So this government, what he did within 20, 20 years, he made all his effort to make sure that there is no trust between the, polit- the politics and the people. So because they, the, all, the election, all the elections were corrupt. 
means people they don't trust on this uh, operation anymore. So that's why um, the whole the whole the whole political um, environment is not actually that clear. Yeah, it's been a long time since there's been a. Um, free and fair election in Algeria. The last one was the one that started the civil war. It sounds like and started and an Islamist party was elected and um, and the military didn't like it. And next thing you know, it's thirty years later. Absolutely, that is that is totally correct. Yes. Well, um, are, would it be acceptable then? Would do you think the people in the street would compromise on this one year deal, even though uh, the government may not? may not um, you know be trustworthy um i don't think so because um that's what exactly that's the same words that's the same speech that he has five years ago i remember that he mentioned hey and within five years i will do my best that's actually that's his quote i'll do my best to have a peaceful and smooth transition to the new generation so after five years it's the same speech he just changing uh, the uh, the time, which is uh, which is not acceptable, and I don't think anybody in Algeria right now um, believing on that and taking it because it's just another one year in order for the government or the people around the the president to find um, another solution or a replacement of the president. So I don't think – so that was the reason actually people – they went out yesterday night in Algeria and that's the way – the same reason that every uh, everybody uh, um, went all over the places in the United States are because you, they don't believe they – don't, they don't believe on that anymore. Are you worried that France and the US and other big powers would back the Algerian state no matter what they did at this point? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question again? Do you think that um, if the U.S. and France backed the government and would back pretty much anything they do right now to protesters, to, to keep stability, the international community definitely wants that in Algeria? Yeah, I think the way how uh, France or any, any country, even the United States, the way, the, the, way, the way how they react into internal uh, political problems, so even in Algeria, is different the way how we see it. So it's all about interest and all about stability. Um, so the international community so far, except France, where well, they are very involved. The reason is actually the, the history background that we have with them. And I personally didn't see any involvement as far as um, being aside the the people and the population against what's happening in Algeria. So it's just they're watching, everybody's watching, and as long as their interests are kept, are preserved, so I don't think we'll see any um, any um, reaction or any reaction against what's ha- I mean, a reaction against the government and what they're doing so far. Mouloud Borbe is a member of Chicago's Algerian community. He was an organizer of the fifth, uh, the no fifth term protests in Daly Plaza yesterday. There were protests in France and San Francisco. Obviously, they've been going for t- uh, 11 days now in Algeria. They're asking that Abdulaziz Bouteflika uh, not run for a fifth term. And thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll keep an eye on the protests uh, on, on, Algeria, on, Algeria, on Algeria. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. 
Coming up after the break, I'll talk with Master Sommelier Emily Wines, and we'll turn our attention to drinking culture in Japan. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for the Wines Report when Master Sommelier Emily Wines joins us for a global journey into drinking culture. Emily is Vice President of Wine and Beverage Experience at Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants. It's great to see you, Emily. Hey, it's great to be back. And it is great to be going to Japan and talking about yes. spirits because I got to admit, I was like, oh, it, we're going to talk about sake. and th- yeah. now, But we're going to talk about so much more than sake. There's so much more than sake. And sake itself is so fascinating, but you know, I think most Americans just think sake is just what you drink with sushi and don't think about it beyond that. What is going on with spirits in um, Japan? Because their, their, their terrain is different than I expected. It, it is. I mean, first of all, you know, Japan is very cold, um, so there's different different kinds of things being uh, being produced there. Um, but they, but they are making the whole gamut of of beverages. There's a tiny bit of wine. Um, they're really into wine, not so much their own, but uh, but sake. Why is uh, that? Why why aren't they into their own wine? Uh, it would seem mostly they're, because they're, it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, why why but, is that? Because they've got a lot of ocean. You'd think they would have some kind of climate for this. They've got mountainy things. Uh, they where, do. Why doesn't it work? Um, um, they just have such an appreciation for the really great classic wines. In fact, there's this incredible sommelier culture there uh, that's really all about wine, and and uh, um, it's it's just as, as profound as the sommelier culture that you find in Europe or the United States, which is pretty amazing. And you have brought an example of sommelier culture in yes. Japan. <laughs> I can't believe they have a doll for sommeliers. This yes. is better than the United States. This is, there are no dolls for sommeliers. Here. I wish there were. Yeah, this is Jenny. Jenny is kind of like uh, the Japanese version version of Barbie, and you can see Jenny in different career clothing. And what I've brought for you is sommelier Jenny. And you can see she's got her sensible <laughs> shoes and her tuxedo and her bottle of pink Bordeaux. You also brought a manga that is involved with uh, wine culture. Yeah. So this is uh, The Drops of God. This is this this manga that's that's basically a comic book that's all about this sommelier with this, you know, superhero level sense of smell. And, and he's exploring the world of wine. And the whole thing is about um, different wine that he's trying and his experience in restaurants and food and wine pairing. And uh, it, the interesting thing about this manga is that in, it's very popular and every time different wines show up in this comic book, it, they become really popular sellers in Japan. And so it's kind of become this um, marketing tool without them trying to make it that. All right. So they're drinking a whole lot of wine from around yes. the world. They're importing more wine. They are importing huge amounts of wine, and they love going to wine country. So when you go to Bordeaux, for example, it's full of Japanese tourists. And they're drinking less sake is what I learned from yes. doing my homework on this segment. It's true. You know, it's one of those things that's sort of generational, I think, is part of it, is that, you know, like old people drink sake, and there are people who really love sake, but if you really want to experience great sake in Japan, you have to go to a place that has good sake. And most places, they're drinking beer and cocktails and wine. They're drinking other things. Also, sake is very dependent on its source of water. And so um, as Japan, as the population, you know, grows or 
as as some of these these kura the, or the breweries get encroached on, a lot of them close down. You know, so it's a it it is a it is something that's sadly starting to diminish. Although there's a, certainly a lot of love for sake in the United States, and people are there. That's where the sake growth is is around Japanese restaurants, which have doubled in recent years around yeah. the world. So they're they're knocking out sake well, and not even just Japanese world. restaurants, all kinds of restaurants. You know, you're finding really great high end fusion or, or even just you know yeah. even American restaurants that have great sake you know you can pair sake different styles with the whole range of foods that you could pair wine with so anything from steak to raw fish to dessert to cheese all right you're sure yeah. about that because my sure experience that. with sake is is limited to how many times can I say no thank you <laughs> It just doesn't seem great. You know, I think the challenge with uh, for a lot of American uh, Americans drinking sake is that, you know, until you start to drink a lot of it, it all tastes the same because it's 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 a, it is a very. Um, you know, there's a lot more subtlety to it in in some ways, but at the same time, there is a real range of styles and temperatures and, um, and all that. So I was surprised to learn that there are 80 different types of sake rice. Yes, isn't and, that amazing? Uh, and they're they're on the label, and you're supposed to be able to tell what, what one from another if you were if you were smart. If you were and a no connoisseur, one, no one in the United States <laughs> could possibly understand completely the names in the lane. Names uh, the label. Yeah, Yamada Nishiki is probably the most common one that you see. But then there's also things like the levels of polishing of the rice. Uh, there's other things like you know, different kinds of treatments that might tell you clues about what it tastes like. For example, one of the ones that I brought you today is a is a Nama Genshu sake. Sake this is in this little tin can. It's meant to. Uh, it's an unpasteurized sake, so it's very vibrant. It's alive as opposed to you know, other styles. And genshu meaning um, undiluted, un, uh, so it's a little for full strength. All right, try me. See if you can win me over to okay. this. Okay, this spirit. is. A, you know, what I love about this too is it comes in a little can, so you can sort of like drink the sake straight from the can if you want. Um, but I think that this is a great sake for a lot of Americans because it is a little bit bolder in flavor. So this is the kind of sake you could have this with steak, unpasteurized. Then, of course, as they say in Japan, kanpai. Kanpai. Oh, that does think? have a lot of flavor. It does. It's very rich, and yeah, unpasteurized means that um, it's alive, which is why it's in this can, protecting it from the light. It's seasonal. These don't last a long time. They're not quite as stable. But I think that these namasakes have an incredible vibrance to them. I would compare this in style to um, – if you were comparing it to a wine, it would be like a Zinfandel. You see how rich it is and how it's got some spiciness to it. Very full-bodied. Yeah, I would have to say that's the most uh, worthwhile sake I've ever drank. <laughs> Good. That's why it's so popular. <laughs> this is uh, the Funaguchi Namagenshu delicious sake. It's one of my favorites. Uh, all right. So um, is that – that is as readily available as all the others I see? I mean – Yes. You can buy that at Binnie's. That's, it's very popular. All right. Good. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm glad. And unpasteurized is fine. It's okay. It's Absolutely. like yogurt. It's like cabbage. Completely. It's like everything. It's, um, yeah. It just is more stable when it's pasteurized, but unpasteurized gives you some pretty unique flavors. All right. What's go- what else is going on so with spirits here? I'm going to show you. Some, I'm going to show you a, a sparkling sake. So what? this is a, you know it's a it's a fermented beverage, and if you ferment it under pressure, you hold the you hold the bubbles in. Um, and this has become an increasingly popular style of sake for people who are looking for something sometimes a little bit fruitier or you know, more of a unique style. This this has a lot of bubbles in it. It has a lot it, of it bubbles a, in it. It makes a head. It's like a <laughs> completely. Beer. 
It's like the champagne of sake. So you can see in this as well, there's a little bit of sweetness to it. Yeah, that is really yeah. different. <laughs> Isn't that a trip? I, 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 yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. You know, sake is also interesting because it's not beer and it's not wine. It's its own thing. It actually goes through multiple parallel fermentations. I would call that easier drinking than yeah. regular sake, which you tend to It's also I, I much lower alcohol. It. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> which is good because where, where I'm taking you today is uh, is going up in strength. Um, so lo- there's, again, lots of other great things that they're drinking in Japan. Beer is extremely popular. And, you know, you see a lot of like Kirin and those lighter style uh, lagers. That is usually all I see. I, yeah. And I think, okay, I will have a Japanese beer and it will be a lager. And that will totally. that, is what, that is what will happen. And there's a lot more than that. So this is another one. This has uh, become real real culty. This is Hitachino. Uh, this is a white ale, sort of a Belgian-style ale. That um, This stuff is so delicious. Uh, you'll find this at a lot of really high-end Asian restaurants, but also you know, some great high-end American restaurants, too. I'm talking with Emily Wines. She is a master sommelier, vice president of the wine and beverage experience at Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants. And we're talking about uh, J- Japanese spirits. And we're on to Japanese beer. And that has as cute a label as any uh, U.S. craft beer kind of thing. They've, they've mastered does. the – oh, I haven't got my glass over here. So you can see color-wise already, it's got a much deeper color to it, uh, beautiful richness. Uh, this is also really interesting in that it is uh, also brewed with some spices and a little orange juice. It's almost like a, like a lambic ale. It's got a real fruitiness to it. Wow, it's good. It's, it's really, really good. good. Yeah, really smooth, very rich. This is a um, you know much full, more full-bodied than what you'd expect from your typical Robert, Japanese what, what is the name of this? Hitachino. Hitachino. Hitachino Nest. And you can see it's got the little owl on the front. Super cute. Um, and you know these, these guys, uh, they, these beers are actually pretty available as well. You can find this in Whole Foods. Probably find it in Binnie's and stores like that as well. I live very close to the Mitsua, which is pretty close to one of the Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants mm-hmm. in, out in the suburbs. And I go in there pretty often and they have a spirits area. I walk right past it and I go for the <laughs> ice cream and the, and the bakery. And the, yeah. the, the noodles, um, but I I never stop, and I, I it looks like I'm missing out on some good stuff. You are. You should take a walk through there. It's fascinating. You'll probably see some things like sochu as well as sake and a lot of whiskey. Uh, whiskey is very big in Japan. What is going on with whiskey in Japan? So the, you know the Japanese have always had a love of whiskey, um, Scotch, bourbon. Um, do you remember in the movie Lost in Translation how he, Bill Murray is there? He's selling a whiskey. Yeah, exactly. So these whiskeys are so popular there, and they're they're actually um, producing a huge amount of them. Um, and and today you can't go to to a great craft cocktail bar without seeing Japanese whiskeys on the shelf. It's they can't make them fast enough eh, for the American market as well as their own market. What what, what is good about them? Uh, just a lot of love and care that goes into the crafting of them, and it's also the water. You know, it always comes back to water with these things. You know, the, the, the purity of the water that you find in Japan is is uh, makes for really gorgeous whiskey. 
All right. And you have brought what kind of whiskey here? Uh, this is um, Akashi. Uh, this is a this is a, a more you know more of a contemporary brand. You don't see a lot of this in the states just yet, but um, pretty classic style Japanese whiskey. And you'll see whiskey is made there more in the Scotch style, um, as well as you'll find some more in the bourbon style, where you get a little bit more sweetness to them. But they but uh, but not typically. They usually fall somewhere kind of in between. I don't think I've ever had. Beer, sake, and whiskey in rapid succession before Emily. <laughs> this is quite a, for everything. This is quite a job you've got. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. Let's try this. All right, come by. Come by. So you see, it's got a little bit of that smokiness. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, like scotch. Yeah, I, 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 there's a real peatiness to it. Absolute scotchy. Yeah, yeah that's smooth. It's, yeah, yeah that, was, that was really good. I could, I, you know. I understand this is popular in the in the crafty, clubby kind of uh, specialty cocktail. Absolutely, thing. absolutely, uh, and and cocktails are something that's that's really hot in Japan too. Like there's some of the greatest cocktail bars are out there, and there's a lot of of bartenders who are really mimicking the Japanese style of of cocktail making, which involves a lot of a lot of intention, a lot of care, a lot of handcrafting. Can sometimes take a while to get a drink, but really, uh, there's really a, a beautiful style of, of bartending that's, that's they're known for. Are there um, age differences in uh, what people drink in Japan? I was reading that the, the, the only sake drinkers are middle-aged men, and, that was <laughs> and, like, and women. There's sake clubs. Yeah, the young people aren't really drinking a lot of sake. They're drinking beer. They're drinking cocktails. Um, you know, but, but that that being said, something like this this uh, can of sake, you could get this in a train station. You know, they'll have vending machines full of really interesting beverages like this. Um, but yes, it is. Unfortunately, I, I hope that there's a there's a young resurgence of sake drinkers coming in Japan. I I had a statistic here that said Japan's sake sales have decreased thirty percent since 1975. Very sad, according to the tax agency of Japan, which likes to tax these things. Yeah. <laughs> it's ho- hopefully it's an industry that doesn't go away because it, what we as you can see it's it's pretty special stuff and and I think there's a lot of champions of sake who are uh, you know hopefully propping it up. <laughs> All right, in uh, one of the sake producing hotspots, Fushimi, where there's breweries for for forever, they they've gone down to 24 breweries from 50 in the 70s. Incredible, unbelievable. So we're we're losing the sake crowd, and the, the sake that's here is getting exported. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's a but it's a such a an ancient craft, and some of these cooler have been there for you know, six hundred years. So you know, you really hope that that's something that doesn't fully die out. Who is doing a good job of pairing sake with all these other foods out there in the in the food universe? Because I never see this happening. You know, you could you could go to any really great high end restaurant like Alinea, for example. I, I had a meal at Alinea a few years ago where I was actually served this exact beer as well as a sake with uh, uh, with with my meal. Um, you can go to places like the French Laundry and you'll find really great high end sakes on the on their list. Um, so the, it's out there. You ha- kind of have to look for it, but I, I rarely see a great wine list that doesn't have at least a couple of sakes on it. 
And are they warming it up and everything, or is it usually the cold sake? It's usually cold. Uh, you see a lot of, of great sake being served like wine in a wine glass, but there's nothing wrong with serving it warm. I mean, think about this. You're in Japan. It's freezing cold out. You've got a nice big bowl of hot ramen. You don't want to drink ice cold anything. You want like to drink something warming with it. And so um, I really love the way that the Japanese play with temperature to uh, match these sakes with their food. Why, why is that? Why is this the only thing that people drink warm and cold? I mean, nobody warms this. Yeah. Mold wine, I guess some people There's warm mold wine. wine. There's not a whole lot. There is a, there is really a trend for warm though. cocktails or, you know, hot cocktails that are, um, you know, think like Irish coffee, uh, you know, all those kinds of more warming, warming drinks like that, uh, but not a lot. You're right. Uh, most people, especially in the United States, we love our ice. We like everything really, really cold. <laughs> What's the best thing you've had to eat with a sake that, you, that we would not – Boy. That, that is not – a rice dish. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's sake is like this one I served you. It was a namasake that was really full strength, and having that with a piece of um, of, of beef, you know, a big ribeye with a little bit of huckleberry sauce, like really big, fatty, smoky meat with that wow. rich of a sake, and you can see how spicy and peppery that sake is. And so yep. the combination is really, really awesome. All right, so there we are. We are going to take a harder look at the the Japanese spirit section. Uh, in in all the the stores out there, and uh, yeah. <laughs> that was really fun, and, and I learned a lot about Japanese spirits. Thanks a lot for joining us, it's Emily Wines. She is a master sommelier, vice president of the wine and beverage experience at Cooper's Hawk Winery and Restaurants, and joins us for the wines report from time to time. Great to talk with you about drinking culture out there in the globe. Absolutely. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will dip into the skirmishes between India and Pakistan. I'll talk with Bali Nasser tomorrow from Johns Hopkins University about uh, the tensions between India and Pakistan. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.